Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of When Movies Were Good. Down here at the uh, old home studio here in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Rachel with my co-host, my weekly guest star, Matt. Yes, home sweet studio home. <laughs> uh, that was what I could come up with on short notice. Well, Matt and I have been uh, gallivanting for the last few weeks. I went to Sydney. Matt went to regional Victoria. Um, Thank you, Dalesford. You put on a good <laughs> So we were sort of out and about and getting back into a few things. And so hence the reason our um, recording was pushed back. So thanks for bearing with us. We are, of course, uh, tonight discussing some monster films as such. Uh, there's a lot of different monster films in the in the degree of where we talk about films right up to 1959, but we thought we'd choose two of the most well-known and they're different kinds of monsters. Um, one is a literal huge ape and the other one is what it is, has the potential to turn people into. So the first film we'll be discussing is the 1933 King Kong and it's a pre-code monster film. And pre-code, as we know, Matt, how would you describe pre-code? That's kind of before they adapted a set of standards for films. Is that how you'd, you'd categorise it? I'm not an expert, but um, pretty much from the late 30s, possibly around the uh, war period or maybe a bit earlier, they had a sensor body that uh, monitored quite closely elements that could be shown in a film and that could rate from things that are reasonable at any time, like to do with um, limitation of violence, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also could be quite aggressive in um, coded times, like showing no references to adultery being allowed or uh, or being allowed to get away with adultery, even at some point uh, laws against mixed-race couples being shown. Yeah, so it's basically so, censorship, wasn't it? Like, yes, yeah. so, so censorship. I mean, it does, like modern ratings classifications... Uh, did grow out of that movement, but it was a very aggressive um, set of codes that even filmmakers at the time had to be quite clever with. Yeah, that's it. So I think it was known as the Hayes Code because that was the person, Hayes, I think it was a gentleman that sort of came up. And, and like you said, it was very, you know, very harsh and they and they had, had to have... So, but King Kong got past that because uh, King Kong was pre-coded, so... But, but yeah, pre-code Hollywood really was a brief era in Hollywood because they had to bring it in once the sound started coming into films and obviously things could be more clearly discussed too. Well, I think it was a silent film which really called Sex. So that oh, was right. pre-code. <laughs> well, yeah, so we will actually do a pre-code one. Well, well, probably we could do several pre-code ones because I, I'm, I'm sure I've seen one or two of the pre-code Hollywood, but... It well, we be... had to go to the adult film store yeah. to find them if they're pre-code, <laughs> I don't know. Right? Well, some of the actors that we um, we have discussed here have done some pre-code films, so we'll have to um, go into the archives and see and see what we've got. But we'll we'll move on with our pre-code film of the night, which is uh, the first one that we're discussing, which is King Kong, 1933. So a while ago now, um, directed and produced by Meryn C. Cooper and Ernest B. Uh, pardon the pronunciation if I get it wrong, showed sack. And the screenplay was James uh, Ashmore Creelan and Ruth Rose, so a woman writing for that one as well. And it was developed, I thought it was based on a book, but it was actually developed on a set of ideas by the writers. 
um, our stars are the beautiful Faye Ray, who was the first screen queen, I guess you could say, Robert Armstrong and Bruce Cabot. And it tells the story of our huge gorilla friend, dubbed King Kong or Kong. And he, when these group of travellers, filmmakers, visit this prehistoric island he lives on with a lot of other interesting creatures, he uh, sees this beautiful young woman that's kind of being offered up to him and uh, becomes obsessed with her and, yeah. Yes, well, I want to say right off the bat that very few major films I've seen have had more obviously tacky special effects, mm -hmm. and yet ne in so long have I never been so engrossed by the storyline like I couldn't stop watching. Yeah, it, it complete like it defied uh, everything I was seeing in terms of special effects. Like you could uh, sort of mm -hmm. see the mm -hmm. uh, plastic uh, or rubber models that mm -hmm. were moving about in stop motion, mm -hmm. but the way they edited together the storyline, it was uh, completely enthralling. Yeah, it was. I actually really enjoyed it. I I suppose, you know, even if you're a younger person, you may be familiar with the famous part, even of the 1933 film, never mind the sort of remakes that they've done over the years, of Kong on the Empire State Building. And it's just such a iconic moment in film history. And everyone's kind of familiar with that. But when you actually sit down and watch the whole film, which I had never done, I'm more familiar with the 1976 version with um, Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange playing the Fay Ray role. Uh, I'm, I have very vivid memories of watching that one as a child and, of course, always knew about the older one. But I have to say, I, it built up the intensity and I just thought, Yes, okay, the special effects aren't a patch on what they've got today, but they were enthralling. Just the, I was just sitting there the whole time thinking, how in the heck did they do that in 1933? Well, I didn't... Like, I am fascinated by mm. that sort of thing, but I didn't even care how they did it. Yeah. The story, it just pushed itself along. Like, I was watching it at about midnight yeah. onwards because that was all I had... Uh, the only time I had to watch it, and I just uh, completely woke, woke up. I, I didn't feel... Um, the time at all, it, I just uh, it just went by in a flash. And uh, going back to the Empire State Building, mm. actually, just uh, something funny occurred to me that we are, do probably have a whole generation now that's used to associating that building with romance stories like An Affair to Remember mm. and Sleepless in Seattle. But then mm. I'm thinking before An Affair to Remember, yeah. <laughs> most people would have thought, okay, uh, King that, Kong. that's that's a building for a gorilla to go up, yeah, on and not for your. Not to have a marriage proposal. Yeah, well, that's what I always think of the Empire State Building as, is the one that King Kong um, climbed up. So it's interesting how this film kind of got to be made because apparently the audience in the early 30s had a fascination with films about animals and primates and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, things like, you know, Tarzan and, you know, anything sort of shot in the wilderness and different documentaries and even some exploitation films about being in the wilderness. So even then, that was, yeah, that was where it, and, and the director had a fascination with gorillas um, and that's how it all got started. So I thought it was always off, off the basis of a specific novel, but it wasn't. Yeah, and that fascination with apes that goes a bit back, because actually an academic I know gave me a book that he wrote on mm. the prevalence of apes in uh, Western cultural fascination, sort of from the 1850s onwards, mm. and all the... And so, like, uh, you have the films, which are form quite a later part of the study, but also looking into a few major statues that were presented at exhibitions, 
in the around the early nineteen hundreds and mm. uh, going backwards uh, and uh, certain uh, lithography studies because apparently the the setting of Skull Island uh, because it has quite a distinct distinctive visual look with the raptors and everything it was apparently based quite closely on a famous lithographer uh, which I should have looked up before we came in. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. And uh, but yeah, that's one of those topics that uh, Google just doesn't provide you at the last minute when you think of it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, if you um get a hold of uh, Ted Gott's book on ape on ape and the Western fascination, um, you can look it up there. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, get a hold of a copy. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it, so like apes do have quite a long fascination in, and like there are varying degrees of what. They could be regarded as a metaphor. Mm. And it's the same thing with looking at uh, stories about mummies. Uh, yeah. With Bo- Boris Karloff and... Uh, no, that's Frankenstein, but... Uh, uh, no, he no, played the mummy as well. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I was... Yeah. I was, I was you nice. were right, yeah. It's nice yeah. when you're accidentally yeah. right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, he did play the mummy as well. Yeah, you're right. So they actually hired... Um, the director hired... Uh, so RKO made this film... And he hired the best-selling British mystery adventure writer Edgar Wallace, and he was given the task of writing a screenplay um, and a novel based on this gorilla thing that Cooper had come up with. And um, and he understood the appeal that this guy Edgar Wallace already had as a famous writer, and he wanted to publicise the film as being based on a novel by Edgar Wallace. So, okay, so that makes sense. So it was sort of uh, a whole hodgepodge and mishmash of all a group of people getting together and coming up with the, the concept of King Kong. Well, you hear of uh, filmmakers buying a book just for the title. Apparently, they had to buy an author to make a title. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, I suppose Cooper, and when he went to RKO in 1932 to try and get... Uh, to try and get the film made, you know, he had to bring in the actors, he had to bring in the people that were going to do the stop motion and really sort of sell it because RKO was like, "Mm, maybe not. And how good was it that he did? And I really, yeah, I mean, look, the whole thing with Skull Island, the whole concept of this prehistoric island, I mean, Matt and I were sort of reading about it before because I was joking around saying, Oh, I was watching the, you know, 2005 Peter Jackson remake and I was like, what the heck with all these dinosaurs and this and that? And Because I don't believe they had that at all in the 1976 version. It was sort of done in a different way. There was a giant snake or something like that, but not the dinosaurs. And then the look on my face when these dinosaurs jumped out, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> they actually were in the original plot for this film. And it was great. It was lots of fun. I mean, I love Tyrannosaurus Rex, so, you know, I had a ball. Yeah, well, it was great when uh, you had Kong fighting against, like, the, um, not the T-Rex, it was like a... Uh, like Stegosaurus or something. Yeah, Stegosaurus. Yeah. And it's been a while since I was a kid. I, uh, I can't, I'm not up to scratch on my yeah. dinosaurs. Yeah. But, yeah, the way the tail swishing and, God, that part when uh, they're going down the island and then suddenly the dinosaur... Turns yeah. around, sees them, and starts charging yeah. towards them. I was like, "Ooh, yeah, jitters. yeah." I actually thought, "Yeah, I, I've just, you know, we were looking at some of the techniques of how they, and obviously Matt, being a, a, um, a filmmaker himself, and also being a great photographer, would have more of an understanding than I would. But they had to use different sorts of composition. They had to use, you know, pasting film together. Run, you know, 
not not stop uh, yes obviously stop motion animation but they had to use our uh, rear screen projection as well they had to use the dunning effect to combine two different bits of film and run them together i mean just the fa i mean how painstaking would that have been i mean well, yeah, I mean, it's hard enough when you're doing, uh, like, a traditional animated uh, sort of Disney cartoon movie, mm. but at least with a with a pen and brush, you have everything to your control. Yes. They had to compose all those uh, parts together, have to get the projection just right, and it's really clever in parts where they actually have, like, a sort of the... The hand, the hands of a monster, mm. actually interacting in the same space with where a human could be. It's like it's one thing to have sort of a split screen and yeah. managing to have them independently and sort of time them just right, but to actually get it to the next level, sort of springing around a bit. And yeah, like it's it's so good. Yeah, and they had to make several different models, and and we were also speaking that Peter Jackson, who directed one of the uh, one of the remakes of. King Kong. He actually owns one of them. So there's some there's some footage of him out there with his um, with one of these Kongs that he owns, which is obviously degraded a lot now. So well, um, yeah. there's just like the metal skeleton because like mm. the eighty plus year old uh, rubber doesn't last the wear very well, so they had to peel it off. So it's just a metal structure. Yeah, and also I guess with the uh, all of the other animals on the island, all of the dinosaurs, and that was. And I think really, basically, the ha maybe the ha Kong's hand and a few other things were sort of built to scale because I know in the 1976 version that was the same thing. But really, you can't talk about King Kong without talking about just how the film was made. And, I mean, you can separate it out in the modern monster-verse that King Kong now exists in with Godzilla because everything is just boring with, uh, you know, what's the computer CGI. Yeah, uh, well... Yeah. Uh, we should probably mention at the time that we're recording this, um, Kong and Godzilla is um, in the theatre, so that's partly what motivated us to do this uh, special. Yeah, definitely. And I will go and see it because I am a, a bit of a fan of, of Godzilla as well. But to me, Godzilla's the Japanese Godzilla. The, the American one just doesn't. It just... I need real motion. I need real things. I don't care how tacky it looks. It's more interesting to me. I don't mind a bit of CGI working in with real stuff, but I need both. What about you? Well, um, one that can be well made uh, can work. Like, I do love The Incredibles, but there is a certain mm. magic to the true stop-motion animation. Yes. It's, uh, But also, like, uh, it's easy to get uh, caught up in technology. Uh, like, we were even commenting before the show that when they made a sequel to King Kong, Son of Kong. <laughs> Which uh, we saw some of. <laughs> like, uh, even though that was made only, I think, like, not even a year after um, they mm. finished the first one, uh, you can tell that they had a better budget. They and that's stepped it, it up. And, yeah. and because, like, the movement of the models is a lot smoother, so they probably had a lot more workers on it. But uh, production value only takes it so far. And, like, it happens countless times. Like, uh, a studio will have a great success with something... Um, done on a minimal budget but done well like like psycho or, or king kong or uh, uh well the sound of music wasn't low budget but yeah. um uh, same principle and uh, like they'll, then they'll start throwing huge amounts of money on a, a similar basis basic storyline but um just to uh, waste too much uh, resources um over inflating a project that may or may not work 
Yeah, I mean, they had to. They actually had to do quite a bit of reshooting in King Kong as well. Some of the effects, like when the woman's Kong grabs the woman out of the window, uh, and a lot of this was shot in Culver City in Los Angeles. But you know, it just was a mammoth. You know, and then they would go back and see the dailies and see that it didn't look particularly good. So, I mean, it was just a really hard, hard graft. Apparently the fight between Kong and the stick was also actually one of the early bits that the filmmakers made independently as like a sort of a, a CV to give to the studio yep. to see if they'd fund the project. And uh, being that that's one of my favourite parts of the whole film, it's uh, really sold itself. Yeah, and I mean, actually, the guys that made that horror film saw they did that. The two Australian guys, James Wan and oh, Lee Winnell, yes, that's his name. They actually did that here in Melbourne. They shot part of what they envisaged Saw would become, and that's how they got Saw made in Hollywood. So it would be a shame if they didn't make the cut. <laughs> Thanks for that. Couldn't resist. Um, yeah. So look, overall, I mean, it's you know, yes, there is. There is a story here. There's a human aspect to the story. You know, what what sort of effect do humans have on undisturbed civilization? What are we doing to the earth? I suppose there's lots of things that are that are contemporary in King Kong. And I suppose that's why Kong is still around. And, and same with Godzilla as well. They are representation of a natural thing in the universe that can't quite be explained and what right do we have to interfere with it or antagonize it and there are certain issues that seem to be glazed over even then like they never quite explain what happens with the brides of kong that they offer up sacrifices. <laughs> i know um, you found that particularly interesting that aspect why do you think it sounds so sinister <laughs> I know, Matt was like, what, is it, what does he want with Faye Ray's character? I'm like, I don't know. But, but, even, the, but even the brides of the uh, tribe living on the island beforehand. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. And like, uh, pretty, pretty insulting. Um, uh, they discriminate because of hair colour. I think one's <laughs> worth more than the other. Um, uh, yeah, so you, you kind of understand why some cultural analysts uh, really dig into these sorts of films. Yeah. Although the filmmakers were determined to say that they would trying purely to entertain or, or and thrill or or at worst like uh, talk about the effects of um uh, or so, or sort of uh, mm. trying to tame the untamed world yeah that's yeah i i mean i think that i think there's a lot you could read into the film but then by the same token it seemed that they were trying to hit a niche in the market with a giant gorilla because the audience seems to be fascinated in primates as just as a general rule at that time in, in, you know, cinema history. And maybe we don't need to read in too much to it. There's, I guess you could just go on the journey of watching the film and, Oh wow, that's interesting. Look how they did that. And, you know, back then that would have been the bee's knees, like watching that in the cinema. Oh yeah. People would have been thrilled out of their minds. Yeah. Um, Although they actually sort of consciously sort of satirise the sensibilities of the popular audience because they, the director's making a whole joke of how, oh, we, I've got to have a girl for this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've heard the greatest <laughs> adventure story and, like, there's no there's no romance in it. Yeah, I did. I Yeah, that kind of, that was a bit jarring to me as well. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't realise. Um, but look, on the whole, it's just a film that you, ha if, whether you're interested in classic films or not, if you're watching the cons the the current monster verse with Kong and Godzilla and their foes, you do need to come back and watch the original Kong and the original Godzilla 
just to put it into perspective, I think. It's one of those big ticks of the, of the box in your mm. lifetime. Like, I'll say that more mm. clearly. It's one of your bucket list things. You need to do it. Yes, King Kong's definitely one it's of the... It's right up there with riding a water ski and <laughs> going on the Great Wall. Yes, yes. And if you get a chance to visit... Empire State Building. It might be a might be a good thing on your bucket list as well. Uh, go there after dinner time. It's a bit crowded during the day. Yeah, I know. I um, Matt and I, fortunately, we've both been to New York City, and uh, uh, and don't think about doing a marriage proposal. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to get someone in the mood for marriage, don't make them wait in the queue for four hours. No, that's it. That's it. Although there mustn't be much of a queue there at the moment if it is actually open. But we'll jump over to California now because we're heading over for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is the 1956 American science fiction horror film uh, directed by Don Siegel. And it stars Kevin McCarthy, who I actually know as an older actor because, of course, he starred in some primetime soaps, most notably Flamingo Road in the early 80s, and uh, Dana or Dana Winter. I think we'd say Dana, but maybe the Americans would say Dana. So a, a black and white film shot in super scope. And I was saying to Matt uh, when he came in to record tonight that I thought Invasion of the Body Snatchers would be right up his alley because it, it was done almost like a, a film noir. And you, it was, even though it was science fiction, it was... Well, yeah, it's like until the, um, until probably the first uh, half is done, you could... Um you could have put in a slightly different plot and made it into a crime thriller. But, yeah, like, I'm not normally that into science fiction, but this was a story that really just sort of lingered in my, in my mind for mm. ages afterwards. Uh, it's, uh, like, I, I, like my fiancé sort of has to drag me to, if I she wants to see a new Stephen King film. Mm. But uh, this particular story sort of really drew me in afterwards. Like, I was still feeling so bad for... Um, for the lead after his uh, girlfriend had uh, been affected by the, I suppose we'll call it like uh, the, the pod virus. Oh, Kevin McCarthy's girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, like uh, that, that was one of the scariest um, scenes I've seen in a while when uh, he, we do a close-up on their faces and sort of uh, we see the girl's eyes change because like throughout the film, it's they've, they've done what is often forgotten now, the sort of beauty of wide spaces and wide shots uh, so that it really has that a dramatic effect when you do go up close. Uh, mm. A lot of films these days, because you can uh, you so easily uh, go up close and have um, auto-focus systems that keep track of the sub subject, it's mm. um, uh, quite often uh, people, a lot of films really like to exaggerate just being able to stay up close to everything all the time. Um, yeah, and, uh, not having the not variation. Not yeah, so, but when you have that variety of visual language, it can really be emphasised. Yeah, so just for the audience, if they haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is another one of these bucket list films, and there have been two remakes. There was one in the 70s, and also I remember, in the, I believe it's the late 80s or early 90s, so there have been two remakes of this, and probably lots of films that are similar and using similar themes. You'll so, never look at Snow Peas. Yeah. <laughs> Giant ones, anyway. So it is an extraterrestrial invasion and it begins in the fictional California town of Santa Mira. And I was saying to Matt that Santa Mira has actually been used in several other films and books, most notably Halloween 3. That's where the 
the um, guy that was the mad mask maker, his um, mask place, the company he had, Silver Shamrock, was set in Santa Mira. But John Carpenter's quite a fan of uh, classic films and all the old classic tropes. So, you know, hence the reason he named uh, Donald Pleasance's character in Halloween, Sam Loomis, after Sam Loomis in Psycho. So basically a bunch of alien plant spores have fallen from space and grown into these large seed pods. So if you can visualize what Matt said, like a giant snow pea, and each one is capable of producing a visually identical replacement copy of human. And that does this while they're sleeping. Is that what they said? They were sleeping and then this thing kind of assimilates into yes. them. So, and when this Dr. Kevin McCarthy's character Sorry, I forgot. No, Miles Bennell. When his character, Dr. Bennell, comes back, he is confronted by people telling him that the people in the town are changing. And it's it's told through is it is it pure flashback? Yeah, I guess, because he starts at the start saying Like Yeah. It's a pretty clear plot sandwich because you're in that psychiatrist's office before and after. Yes. And that's kind of like the a very easy way to um uh, create that dangerous situation of will they believe the guy or not? Like uh, in those sorts of situations, I'm always thinking like I can't actually tell them the actual truth. I need to make up some sort of convincing, plausible story. Like say that there's a, a plague going through the town or something, so they just mm. bomb the city out. Uh, like yeah. don't, don't tell the actual truth. Truth, just create some fib. Yeah. Uh, so he's telling. So Kevin McCarthy's character, the Doctor, is is you know, starts, as Matt said, in the in the office at the start, he goes back and explains what's happened. And over the course of the film, he, he, he as the Doctor, uncovers this quiet invasion that's going on with these pod people and he attempts to stop it. So, and basically that, I've heard that slang expression before, oh, what are you, a pod person? And I never really understood what it meant. And I'm like, now I understand what a pod person actually means. I haven't heard that expression, but maybe uh, my school chums are just a different generation. Oh, well, I saw it, of course, on an American soap opera. So oh. that's where I, that's where, of course, that's where I heard it. So, um... I, this this film has shades of other science fiction films. It's a it's a touch of sort of War of the Worlds slash um, Day of the Triffids slash. It even, it, it even reminds me of uh, Bird Box, that film with Sandra Bullock mm. that came out a couple of years, years ago, which is kind of all about uh, this uh, strange force that uh, where if you sort of oh, look out, go outside, or go to sleep, you'll be entrapped by it. Yeah, or The Quiet Place, which is about those um, extraterrestrial things that have come to Earth and they can't see. It's the sound they can hear. So even though I wasn't that interested in both of those films, I thought they were a little bit long, and you know me with long films, but um, this, this, these sorts of films are a bit more interesting and I would definitely like to watch a, a lot more science fiction films from this period. It's one of those storylines where you can easily interpret so many or push so many meetings inside because it is such a vague, a vague motive behind uh, what's happening. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the film had good pacing. Uh, I do. I you know having. I mean, when I saw Kevin McCarthy's face, I was like, hang on, I know, I know this person, and I have seen him towards the latter part of his career. He actually had a part in a, a film that had a lot of things going against it, and that was the Twilight Zone 
film. Do you know much about that film? Kevin McCarthy was in one of the stories, so you know. No, I've seen it as some of the original TV episodes. Yeah, that go go home tonight and look up just exactly what happened. It was shot in the early eighties, nineteen eighty three. And it was like a big feature film. They did the Twilight Zone. And the whole film is incredibly creepy. But when they've got a lot of very well-known actors like John Lithgow in it, Kevin McCarthy. But something, some terrible, horrible thing happened to three people on the set of that film. And nothing to go into now. But God, just knowing that fact alone, what happened to them. Not so that's something, that's something to look up. Um, but getting back to what we're discussing... So this is based off Jack Finney's novel and in the novel it's the old, you know, the old sort of fable of it's never as good as the novel and I'm sure there's lots of things in the novel. I haven't, I haven't read the novel of you. Like, no, I haven't, but uh, it's like the old cartoon of the two goats uh, eating a manuscript, eating a, a film um, reel and one goat saying, I prefer the book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I tend to read a lot of true crime and, and historical sort of books and autobiographies. I don't tend to read a lot of sort of um, fiction works. And then often when I do, I remember reading Pet Cemetery recently, it's one of Stephen, and I've been watching the first Pet Cemetery film since I was a teenager nonstop. And the book just couldn't match up to the film because the film had, was already far too ingrained into my mind. But if you read the book first, everyone says the book is much better. So, yeah, so Joseph Cotton was originally considered for the role that Kevin McCarthy played. And then we even had people like Anne Bancroft, Donna Reed, Kim Hunter and the great Vera Miles who were considered for, uh, for the role of Becky. So um, they did actually shoot right around the Los Angeles area uh, and inside the Allied Artist Studios on the east side of Hollywood. What did, you, what did you think of the look of the film? Well, I thought the fact that it's even called Santa Myra makes a mm. clear reference to it being sort of in the Californian area. And yeah. so at that time, like, uh, people, I think, forget that California, most of the West Coast, was had been barely settled up to the 1900s. So it, it was meant to be this, it's like a really good depiction of what was regarded as every man's America at the time. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Joseph mm. Cotton because mm. he was in that Hitchcock film Shadow of a Doubt. Mm -hmm. And that was all about a typical all-American uh, West Coast town uh, and this uh, sort of dark force from without uh, uh, could come in and sort of um, mess up the uh, social order. And you could sort yeah. of... Um, like, I have a feeling Joseph Cotter might have been a bit old by the mm. time of the invasion of the Body Snatchers, but mm. it would be an interesting interplay because he played uh, uh, his own... He almost played the alien invader part in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. Uh, so to have him the... To interest a rights role almost um, in body snatches that would be a fascinating crossover. Yeah, it is, and just just reading here a little bit about the original intended ending, because at the end of spoiler alert, spoiler alert, at the end of the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, what the Doctor has been telling them is confirmed when they find out that this bunch of pods has actually been found because up until that point they were sort of like, uh, what the heck is this guy talking about? And that was a, a narrative thing that was done by the studio because it originally finished with him just 
on his own screaming, like playing out in real time and screaming as truckloads of pods pass him by and he can't do anything to stop them. That would have been a great way to finish it. Yeah, which I think it would have, but the, the studio didn't want a pessimistic conclusion and that's why they added the prologue part and the epilogue you know, and then obviously they had him retelling the story to the psycho because they wanted it to have a more optimistic outcome that something can be done to stop these things. And that's what they wanted to have. So, um, and then the FBI, of course, is notified and went on from there. So, although I find it hard to believe that the doctor would just suddenly call in the cavalry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, years later, you know, um, they were the directors and the people involved in it actually said that they didn't particularly like that, but it was those in charge at, you know, allied artists who were shooting the film that wanted that. So, um, they control the people with the scissors. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty much. Yeah. So I thought that was, that was interesting. It had a theatrical release in February of 1956. Um, and then they used, um, sort of display pods made out of paper mache in the, in the film lobbies, which would be kind of fun. I wonder if it's probably photos out there. I might see if I can find some and put them on the, put them on our Facebook page. In, and, in another world, they'd probably get opened up and photographers take pictures of babies yeah. in them with little <laughs> cabbage patch outfits. Yeah. Um, and Gettys, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so as we conclude on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I mean, here we go. The subtext of the conformity of post-war Eisenhower era America. What do we think about that? Well, yeah. It's, it's possible, like, uh, the same with the Crucible being a metaphor. Like, that was a definite metaphor from McCarthyism. Yeah. But I think one trouble with, uh, with uh, judging uh, in this way is that so often when we're trying to interpret a storyline, we think that people's lives are, are ruled by the headlines of what happens to be on the newspaper at the time. And when I think of how I interact with the news of events, like sometimes it impacts me, but quite often I'm like going through my life and occasionally what's uh, happening in the news uh, might, might represent part of my life. But I'm mm. trying to think that there's no way, there's no way that an artist can accurately uh, get a, a slice of my life or yeah. one of my uh, friends or neighbours by reading what was on the front page of the Herald Sun that day. Mm. Yeah, and also... Quite, quite the opposite, quite often. Yeah, it, it does have that sort of foreboding fear. And then also at the time, you know, the Cold War with the Soviet Union and I guess... And then some other writers have also discussed the loss of personal autonomy during this time within the communist regimes around the world. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, if everyone's turning into a pod person and they don't really have much autonomy over their lives or what they're doing. So I think there's several different ways, but the whole film just does have a very creepy vibe to it. Yeah, like I st still have a, a bit of chill in me uh, about it. It's like some of the short stories by Roald Dahl I started reading recently and like, uh, God, he could be, for a children's author, he could have a twisted imagination. Yeah, Roald Dahl was an extremely talented uh, storyteller and I'm mostly familiar with his children's novels, but even those have a very adult sort of subtext to them as well. So, Yeah, well, if you haven't uh, read it, read the story Lamb to the Slaughter. That's a good one. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take your advice on that. Well, I think we're about time to get ready to wrap this one up and I thought both films were interesting. I enjoyed them. Two ones I wanted, especially King Kong, I wanted to tick off the, the list because there's just so many films to see. You could literally sit down night after night and you'll never get through everything. But that's the lifetime journey of when movies were good. But yeah, I was uh, glad to have um, this theme I generally gave uh, both uh, like 
five popcorns out of five. Yeah. <laughs> we will have to come up with a grading system, although we always start with the premise of that all of these movies are good, but there's uh, certain aspects to them we may or may prefer more than, than others. So, yeah, definitely two monster flicks you should check out. And, you know, especially if you've gone to see uh, the new newest King Kong film, which I will go and see, but the CGI gets a bit much for me at different times. We wanted to do the a review of the original Godzilla for this episode as well, but we just couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. Yeah, well, I'll have to actually... Inv- not even... If anyone knows on a streaming platform, we're happy to pay for it, but I couldn't... Um, well, we might end up having to buy it. Maybe we'll go halves in it and do it for another thing. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Just like even um, the streaming services just couldn't find it. Yeah. Either. Like, I don't know, are we going to have to find a drug dealer to uh, <laughs> get a, an underhand copy or something? Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, you can definitely get some of the later ones. They're, they're not too hard to come by. But um, now, in light of recent events, we'll make an introduction to the next uh, episode of When Movies Were Good. Uh, in light of the loss of uh, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, recently, very sad for the Queen there, we've decided to have a royal theme, Matt, and we are yes. going to do 1938's Marie Antoinette, starring Norma Shearer and Tyrone Power, two you know, icons in the classic movie uh, sphere, and then the private life of Henry VIII. Matt, Matt and I find Henry VIII a very interesting character. 1933, with the great Charles Lawton, and directed by Alexander Corder. And those are the, we've got our royal theme. Yeah, that'll be a, a very good uh, topic to go over because it was quite a, a journey to find the suitable films because the natural choice was to look at a lot of those famous Shakespeare ones like Olivia's Hamlet, but mm. we were planning on doing a Shakespeare episode at another time, so I was, I was thinking, okay, we'll save those and yeah. we'll look at these two films, which, like Philip himself have uh, very different interpretations of what it's like to go through life in the confines of royalty. Yeah, and, I mean, Prince Philip was, what, like 10, 12 when these films were made anyway. So he was around for all of them. He may have seen a lot of these films in real time. So it just goes to show, God, the era that he lived through, you know, nearly 100 years old. I mean, you know, um, it's sad that he didn't make it to the 100th birthday, but he certainly had a good run. Yeah, well, um, uh, I guess you can testify that doing polo is good for your health. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to stay on the horse, though. But uh, And also, Matt's just going to quickly run down our social media. Yes, well, we have social media that necessitates that we talk about yeah. them now and then. <laughs> so, yeah, our, we're on our YouTube channel. Hit subscribe and a thumbs up and uh, a nice comment. That's always appreciated. We also have our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter feeds to get similar, but very important for you to still pay attention to media releases. <laughs> um, and also, tell us what you think about the films. Have you seen them? What do you What do you think about them? Did you enjoy them? Uh, it's always interesting to hear how other people view the films and what they enjoyed or didn't enjoy about them. But in the meantime, as always, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.